If you will take your Bibles and open this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll start in verse 24 in a minute and we will finish, finish this chapter as we see uh, the failings or the shortcomings of following a man. How many of you know who Bernie Madoff is? In 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested and charged with securities fraud. He later pled guilty to 11 federal felonies. Madoff was an investor who defrauded thousands of clients to the tune of about $64 billion, with a B, billion. And it's considered the largest case of financial fraud in, in U.S. history. I don't say that to dissuade you from investing or anything like that. But as one of the many illustrations I could have used to show you the dangers of following a man, of trusting a man. Mr. Madoff's clients trusted him with their money, and through no fault of their own, really, it cost them dearly, pun intended. Be careful who you trust. I know to these people that was very important and very hurtful, but there are things a lot more important than money. And there's been a lot of people throughout the history of this, of this world who have placed their trust, their eternal trust, in men. In, in men who are nothing but men. Muhammad, Buddha, you name it. But Jesus Christ isn't just a man. He's the Son of God. If you choose to follow the wrong man, you stand to lose a lot. Because men let you down. Men are fickle, men fail, men are selfish. In short, men are sinners. And that was true for King Saul. It was true for Israel. And we'll see that this morning. They, the man that Israel followed was their king. But nothing that King Saul did in the, in the episode we'll see today, nothing he did enhanced Israel's victory or brought the people any closer to God. In fact, the opposite was true. Saul's actions that we'll see this morning suppressed their victory and hurt the people spiritually. When you follow the wrong man, when you trust the wrong man, you've got a lot to lose. We'll look at verse 24 through 30 and read those verses, but just to remind you real quick of the context, God had saved Israel from a massive Philistine army, partly through the brave and faithful actions of Jonathan and his armor bearer. They killed 20 Philistines in a way that was just absolutely absurd. The only way they could have done it was with the Lord's help. And Saul, when he saw the Philistine camp melting away in confusion, he saw his opportunity to attack. Even He was even so bent on attacking right then that he told the priest basically to quit praying. We don't have time for that. We've got to go fight. And so verse 24 through 30 give us some more details of the battle that day. Look at verse 24 of 1 Samuel 14. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. 
But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of his rod, uh, the end of the rod that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father has troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more, if haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found, for had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. Verse 24 is a little surprising and, and a whole lot sad because verse 23 says the Lord saved Israel that day. But then the very next thing we read is that the people are distressed. If the Lord saved them, why are they distressed? The idea of being distressed here is not what we may think of worried or anxious like we might use the word stress. But the idea of the word here is that the people were pressed out. They were squeezed. They were um, driven. Or you would even use this word to describe someone exacting taxes from you. You just squeeze every drop out of them. The word was used to describe the Egyptian taskmasters when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. When that happened, those slave masters drove them hard. They pressed them. They, they squeezed every bit out of them that they could. Every ounce that they could squeeze out of the Israelites, they did it. And now that's happening again, but this time it's because of their own king. It's not because of any Egyptian slave master. Their own king is now squeezing and pressing everything out of them. Didn't Samuel warn them about this? Samuel, when the people clamored for a king to deliver them from foreign oppression, he said, you don't really understand because having a king is going to bring its own kind of oppression. And now they're seeing it. They didn't care for the wisdom of Samuel. They didn't care to heed his warning. And now everything he said, they're seeing it come to pass. And now they're being oppressed and squeezed and driven hard by their earthly king. And what really makes it worse is just the way Saul pressed the people. It was unnecessary and foolish and rash. The reason the people were so distressed, we read it just a moment ago, was because, uh, because Saul placed his army under an oath that nobody can eat until evening. And if anyone does eat before evening, that man's cursed. Why in the world would Saul do that? Why would you make an oath when your soldiers need calories, when they need energy, when they're fighting, you tell them, no, you can't have an energy bar. No, you can't drink a protein shake. No, you can't have any honey. We're not eating right now. We're fighting. Why would you do that? Some people suggest that Saul wanted to impress the people, to impress the soldiers by showing how ultra-spiritual and zealous he was. Wow, you mean we're going to fast even during battle? Boy, King Saul's holy. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe he wanted to impress the people I think for sure he wanted to show the people how serious he was about this battle. 
Fighting the Philistines was so important to him, but it wasn't because of how spiritual he was. He wasn't concerned for the Lord's reputation. Look at verse 24. What does he say? Why are we not eating food? That I may be avenged on mine enemies. It has nothing to do with Saul standing up for the Lord's reputation. He's not worried about the Lord losing honor if the Lord's people Israel are falling to the Philistines. It's all about selfish personal revenge. We're not eating until I'm avenged of my enemies. That is a very foolish and unnecessary oath that Saul gives the law of Moses even did not require Israelite soldiers to not eat during battle. This was nothing in the law of Moses, so why would the king require that now? But you know, throughout history, men put heavier restrictions on people than God does. It's always the case. Men are tougher on men than God is on men. Every man-made religion, every man-made system of worship is oppressive to the people that's under it. Think about the, uh, the way the Pharisees oppressed the Jews in the first century because they had made so many little rules that you had to follow. The religion of Islam, there are do's and don'ts and rules and rites and rituals that you have to follow. Every man-made system oppresses those under it. But if you will surrender yourself and put yourself under God, that's when you're truly free. Remember what Jesus told the people one time? He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you feel oppressed in your life, if you feel like, I just can't, I can't do this, I can't, I can't do enough, you're not doing the right things then. You're putting it all on yourself, or you're, or you're putting it all on some other man, but if you'll trust in Jesus Christ, you're free. You're free to serve God. Men create rigid systems that oppress people, and you will be weighed down if you follow a man or a man-made religion. But if you follow Jesus, he's the author of liberty. <laughs> You're free. Saul put these, uh, this oppressive restriction upon his soldiers that kept them from eating. And so even when they, they come into this forest and there is some just delicious honey, can you imagine how good that looked to them? They're, they're starving to death. They're so weak, and they come across this wild honey. But it says in verse um, 26 that they feared the oath. They didn't fear God. They feared what Saul had said. I'd rather people fear God than any man. But these people feared the oath, and so they don't touch it, even though you know they wanted to. They needed it. But Jonathan didn't hear the oath, probably because he was the one who gave him the victory in the first place because he and his armor bearer were off actually fighting Philistines when everybody else is scared to death. But Jonathan didn't know anything about the oath, so he said, oh my goodness, there's some honey. He reached out and he grabbed some, and it says his eyes were enlightened. doesn't mean anything 
necessarily spiritual about that, about his eyes being enlightened. It just meant he perked up. And he felt his life come back into him. He'd been fighting and chasing Philistines all day long, and he got some sugar. Whew. That's good stuff. He had a little energy at last, and the men were exhausted. Verse 28 says they were faint. All it took was just a little honey to, to revive Jonathan. Just a little bit of that honey would have helped so much that day for these men. It would have made such a difference if it weren't for Saul's silly oath. It's interesting to me in these verses that even though it's Jonathan who's the one who breaks the oath unknowingly, he's not the one that comes across as the bad guy. He's not the one that comes across as a fool. Saul's the one that comes across as a fool for actually making the oath. When the people alert Jonathan about what his dad said, he immediately sees the foolishness of his father. Verse 29, Jonathan said, My father hath troubled the land. The word troubled here was used in Achan's story in Joshua. If you remember, Achan was the man, the Israelite man, who sinned during the battle of Jericho. Tried to hide some goods for his own uh, selfish desires instead of giving everything they had in Jericho back to God. And so the very next battle, when they fought the city of Ai, the Israelites lost. They lost some soldiers. They lost some men. And they had to find out who sinned in the camp to bring this upon them. And Joshua told Achan, why did you bring trouble on us. And it's that same word now that Jonathan uses to describe his dad, the king. Achan's sin brought trouble upon Israel and they lost a battle because of it. And now their king has brought trouble upon the people and their victory has been severely diminished because of it. Without this unnecessary oath, the soldiers would have had more energy to fight and the victory would have been much greater. And so we come to verse 31 and 35, and we'll see that not only did Saul's restriction hurt their victory or diminish their victory, but also starving the soldiers created an, an abnormal craving for food, almost an animalistic craving for food once the evening finally came. Look at verse 31 through 35. And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people did eat them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord in that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat. And sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. The Jews were required by the law of Moses that when they slaughtered an animal to eat that, that meat, they were to let the blood drain from that meat. These men are so famished and so exhausted that they refuse to wait for that. We don't have time to wait for the blood to drain. And they eat it with the blood in it. They disregard the law. They sin against the Lord by eating in this forbidden way, this unkosher way. And 
Saul was either unaware that that was a sin or unaware that the people were doing it. At least unaware the people were doing it because someone has to come and tell him, Saul, do you know what the people are doing? They're eating with the blood in it. They're sinning against the Lord. And when he heard that, he tried to remedy the situation. And he says, send word through the camp. Tell everybody to bring their food here on this big rock. And it says in verse 35 that Saul built an altar to the Lord. Perhaps what was supposed to happen now is that people were to stop what they were doing. They were to bring their meat and their animals uh, to this altar and maybe offer a fellowship offering to God because men were able to eat when they offered a fellowship offering. You could eat some of that meat. Uh, maybe that was going to be Saul's remedy that day, but there's a couple of things to, to notice about these verses. Really about Saul, I guess. Number one is that even though the people are responsible for their own actions, okay, they made the choice to do this, but it was Saul's ridiculous restriction that created such an abnormal craving for food in the first place. Saul's leadership has not led them to spirituality. I like what one man says. He says, A truly spiritual vow brings out the best in people, but Saul's carnal vow brought out the worst. Saul wasn't trying to have the people be holier by fasting during battle. He was just showing the seriousness of it and, and him wanting to be avenged of his own enemies. And so that very carnal vow that he made has led to carnality among his people. Saul's not a very good spiritual leader here. Man-made rules will not bring you closer to God. Another thing to, to mention here is that even after this happens and the people are sinning against God uh, through this way, and Saul learns about this, we're not told of any uh, humility. We're not told of any humble or apologetic reactions on his behalf. No remorse to know that he created this problem. There's nothing like that at all. A good leader doesn't have to be perfect, but humble enough to admit when he was wrong. Saul doesn't do that at all. He just tries to fix the problem, and he doesn't ask God for help. He doesn't seek the Lord's will. There's no record of prayer. There's no asking the priest for advice. Nothing. He just assumes, roll a rock to me. I can solve this problem. We'll build an altar to the Lord. And we're told it's the first altar he's ever built in his whole life. But even in verse 36 and 37, even after he does build the altar, we might could have said, well, maybe he is turning to God. Maybe he is wanting to get the people right with God. Even after that, God is not even, even on his mind. Once the people have food in their bellies, he's ready to go out and fight all night. Thankfully, there's a priest that says, hang on. Maybe we need to ask God first. Look at verse 36 and 37. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatsoever seems good unto thee. Then said the priest, Let us draw near hither unto God. And Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. I love the priest here. Before we draw near to the Philistines again, maybe we should draw near to God. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. Do you realize what the people were just doing, Saul? Absolutely eating in disregard of the law of Moses, and now we think we're going to go fight the Philistines with the Lord's blessing? Let's, let's take a moment here and, and seek God first. 
Saul apparently says, okay. And he seeks God. He asks him, will you deliver us? Verse 37 is very telling because it says God doesn't answer him. He doesn't hear from God that day. The Lord's silence casts a shadow on Saul's leadership right then and there, but also kind of foreshadows and prepares us for the time that when God will finally and ultimately stop answering Saul later on in 1 Samuel because of his continued rejection and rebellion and disobedience. Verse 38 through 42, Saul assumes that since the Lord's not answering that there's sin in the camp, just like with Achan. You know, Joshua knew there was sin in the camp. We've got to figure out where it is. And so we have another link to Achan's story. We've got to figure out where the problem is. Look at verse 38. Saul said, Draw ye near hither, all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son... Uh Uh-oh. He shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. You think the people just kind of said, I'm not telling him. I'm not going to say a word. Verse 40, Then said he unto all Israel, Be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seems good unto thee. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken. But the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. We know the problem. We knew that Jonathan was the one that dipped his hand in the honey and ate. Um, He broke the oath. But Saul doesn't know it. And he sure talks a big talk, doesn't he? As the Lord lives who saves Israel, if this sin is in Jonathan, my own son, he will die. Boy. I think Saul may still be trying to impress the people, maybe with how zealous he is, with how serious he's taking this. Wow, Saul's willing to kill his own son. He's so serious about it. He's talking a big game, but he's a fool. He's so foolish. He's not asking for God's help, but just rashly reacting to situations again. The same king who hurt his own victory by forbidding his soldiers to eat is now unknowingly condemning not only his best soldier to death. Jonathan was the one who who gave them the victories the past two chapters over the Philistines. But he's not only his best soldier, he's his son. And so by spouting off at the mouth, Saul's made yet another foolish and rash vow. Don't do that in your life. When you, when you have a situation in your life that arises, ask God's wisdom. Ask Him to help you. James says that if we'll ask God for wisdom and faith, He'll give it to us liberally. God has an infinite supply of wisdom, so He will never run out. Saul doesn't seek God's wisdom at all. And so the selection process has selected Jonathan... And now it's going to come to the point, will, will, will Saul carry out this vow? Is he going to kill his own son? He's vowed to do it in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 43 through 46. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him us and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, and lo, I must die. 
And Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. The people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. I, I love Jonathan's answer when Saul asked him, Son, what'd you do? I love that he uses the word little. It's just one of those, no pun intended, one of those little things. I ate a little honey. Is that really worthy of death? I was, I was about to fall over. I was so tired, Dad. I ate a little honey. He wasn't gorging himself. He wasn't disregarding the battle so he could eat a snack. He wasn't a glutton. I ate a little honey. Lo, I must die. Boy, I wish we could hear how Jonathan said that. Maybe he was being, you know, courageously brave, saying, I'm here, Dad, you made the vow, and I need to die. Maybe he was being sarcastic because he knew he broke an oath without knowing about it and knew the oath was foolish to begin with. <laughs> I ate a little honey, so, boy, I better die for that. If you made me choose, I might choose that way. I don't know. And as baffling as it seems to us, it seems that Saul's ready to follow through with this. Verse 44 God do so more, so you're dying, son. I've made an oath. But the people wouldn't have it, would they? They stood up for Jonathan. They would not allow Saul to put his son to death. Really, they make their own oath. Look, they invoke God's name in their oath. They say, as the Lord liveth. We're not going to harm one hair on his head. No, now we've got two oaths that are contradicting each other. Both by the Lord's name, what are we going to do? Well, the people rescued Jonathan. I'm glad they did. The people understand the events better than Saul did. They say, Jonathan's the one that worked with God today to bring us the victory. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill the one who God used the most. So Saul's vow remains unfulfilled. They say, well, should he have kept his vow and, and put his son to death? I'm glad the people rescued Jonathan. I think David's going to be glad later on Jonathan's still alive because they're going to become great friends. The real issue goes back to the fact that Saul should have just kept his mouth shut in the first place. In the first place, Don't make rash, hasty vows that you're not going to follow through with or that following through with would be something utterly shameful. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon talks about offering vows and oaths to God. And he says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So what am I supposed to learn from this then? Don't make hasty and rash vows to God. You can't impress God with your mouth. You can't impress God with your spirituality. Well, I'll do this. Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll never miss church service ever again. Better be careful. 
It's better just to not say anything at all. That's what Solomon's telling us. The wise thing to do is to let your words be few. That's not what Saul did that day. He has made two foolish vows. One that cursed someone for eating during battle and one that then ended up sentencing his son to death. Thankfully, the people saved Jonathan. God doesn't require us to make vows. But if you do, you better take it seriously. If you vow things to God all the time and, and you don't keep them, it just demonstrates that you have a disrespect for God. Solomon said, he's in heaven and you're on earth. He said, don't be hasty with your mouth. The wise thing to do is not vow, but just humbly and faithfully serve God out of love with His gracious help instead of making empty promises trying to show how spiritual you are when you're really not. And He knows it anyway. Real quick, let's look at verse 47 through 52, which these verses just kind of summarize Saul's kingship and his family. Verse 47. So Saul took the kingdom over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and against the children of Ammon and against Edom and against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines and whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them. And he gathered a host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Eshui and Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the names of his firstborn, Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Himeaz, and the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. Isn't that another thing that Samuel warned the Israelites about? Is that your king... When he sees a soldier, when he sees a warrior, when he sees a strong one, young man, he's going to seize that, that man for his service. And we're told that's exactly what happened. So Israelites, they would lose their good workforce, lose men that could help, helped around the, the land, helped around the house, uh, hunted, farmed, and all those sorts of things, but now they're soldiers to the king. The king brought his own kind of oppression, just as Samuel predicted. But they weren't willing to listen to his warning. The main lesson that we need to understand from this story, at least this part of the story, the failings and the shortcomings that come with when you follow a man. Israel wanted an earthly king like the other nations so bad. And this story shows us so many things that were wrong with that. I love what one author writes. He says that a king could lead Israel into battle, but he could also diminish a nation's capacity to achieve victory. Kings could build altars for their subjects to sacrifice to God, but they could not guarantee an encounter with the divine. They could utter powerful words, curses, and oaths, but lack the power to bring about their fulfillment. What a mighty king who has cursed men and sentenced someone to death, and the people saved the man. Hey, what power does Saul really have? How much of a king is this guy? He leads people into victory, and the victory is less because of it. The people are less spiritual because of his leadership. He has no power to even fulfill the things that he vows. It's a pretty weak leader. A pretty weak leader. 
following a man and following man-made rules will not bring you closer to God. We read earlier, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Do not trust anything or anyone else to make you right with God except for Jesus Christ. Being right with your Creator is only possible through His Son. Trust in Christ today and in no other man. Say, so what about preachers, pastors? Can we not have good earthly leaders? Well, don't trust them for salvation. Goodness gracious. But Paul told the Corinthians, Be ye followers of me, but he didn't stop there, did he? Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. There are good earthly leaders. There are good pastors. There's good teachers. The only men worth following are men who are following Christ. Those men won't diminish your victories. They won't hurt you spiritually, but they'll give you good examples to follow. They'll point you to Christ. They'll teach God's Word. And the moment their teachings and actions stray from Christ, the moment their teachings and actions do not reflect Christ, you stop following that person. Stop following that man. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't put your faith in any man. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you stand? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day and for the time that we can meet together and worship you and sing your praises and look into your word. Father, help us to trust you and you only, not any man, not ourselves, not our works, but just to trust your Son. Father, we pray for your will to be done in our lives and in this church, Lord. We pray that you'll forgive us of our sins and where we fail you. In Jesus' name, amen.